Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I'm your host, Eric Acker, with Karen. Hey, guys. Again. Um, so we're just going to we're gonna talk about a few topics that we kind of thought about over the course of this last week. Uh, we've been doing a couple interviews and this kind of question is something I've been it's been one of my favorite questions to ask programs as I I do the interviews and I I felt like it might be about time to just kind of talk it over with the the various answers I've gotten and uh also talk over various things I've gotten our thoughts on the particular question also we want to talk about a little bit about some of the events of this last week it's been a relatively eventful week since uh, since we last talked um not nothing too crazy, but definitely some uh, some events for sure. Well, we don't look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> I, I... Yes. Okay, this is a podcast. So they don't. They can't see your crazy eyes when you. <laughs> <laughs> My crazy eyes. <laughs> I was trying to think of what events. <laughs> well, there was a code. Uh... Oh, that's right. <laughs> Events for you. I was just dealing with sick kiddos. There's <laughs> that too. I mean, that's that's also pretty. We're a little paranoid now. We're sitting there watching TV or talking or eating dinner, and we'll hear the kids, and we're like, uh, "Are they going to throw up again?" And there's like this weird gastral bug that's been going through all of our kids, and well, not all, just like three, three of our kids, and they'll have vomiting and diarrhea, and then. They'll be fine they'll be for two fine. days, and then it'll come back. And then, yeah, it'll come straight back, and then they'll go back to having some diarrhea and vomiting, and then be fine. And then they like, they have appetites almost right away in some it's, cases. Yeah, it's it's, really it's weird. just a really weird. It's a weird bug. Um, we haven't taken the kids into the doctor just mostly because, um, from my experience, it sounds like just symptom care. You know, it's there's no fever. There's nothing. They're not dehydrated. They are so sand fluids. They're they're eating as tolerated. We've been trying to regulate the the food intake a little bit. So, uh, especially right after they vomit, it's like, well, well let's not feed <laughs> feed the monster here. Uh, <laughs> but you know, keep them hydrated, keep them going, and then they turn out just you know they do just fine. So there's no reason to go to the doctor and waste the doctor's appointment on what they for them to tell me what I kind of already know, which is continue to keep them hydrated keep them rested or maybe avoid sharing cups between siblings and there you go um and of course like since there's no fever there's all these other things that we don't understand and it's like weirdly periodic like it's days between episodes that it's like okay is there food involved is there something that they're eating that's like triggering this uh we've come up short pretty Pretty yeah, much. But yeah, it's been, I checked all recalls. It's been about, knock on word, uh, <laughs> about four Almost days. Almost a week, yeah. Almost a week? Okay. Yeah, so that's the excitement on the home front. Um, let's see, which would you rather get into the... Let's the, let's do um, your week at uh, uh, for cardiology, and then we can, we oh, okay. can kind of talk about the interview question, because I think that's going to be probably our main focus. Yeah. So uh, we're doing... 
obviously the uh, cardiology rotation or electrophysiology with Dr. Poku. Um, he, I, I, I was tempted to say up in Macon, which is where I've been most of my weeks. Um, but he does go all the way down to Cordell, um, Valdosta. Tomorrow I'm going to be in Douglas. Um, so all over the state of Georgia. <laughs> um, and mostly it's uh, relatively uneventful. We do clinic. We kind of follow him through clinic, ask questions, learn. He's a, he's a great teacher. He's a, he's a lot of fun. He has lots of jokes. Uh, he's got a, maybe a personal life that I probably wouldn't follow his footsteps in, but he he tends to make jokes about it and you know it's that's on him that's up to him to do that sort of stuff but uh but all in all he's a he's a great preceptor um and the, there's some work involved he does make us do uh look up st old studies and he really wants us to understand like why are you prescribing this why do we follow these guidelines and look at the studies and see what's the pros and cons of the studies and that that bit's a little bit of extra work um more work than I, I would probably would love to do, but it's all stuff I have to know and all things that are good for me to know as a fourth year medical student, if not a third year medical student should know it as well. Um, but I think the probably the main event um, that kind of sticks in my mind for the last week is uh, we were, we as in me and the other medical student as a third year medical student I was with, we were watching Dr. Poku as usual in his electrophysiology lab and a nurse comes in and says hey we need you guys to help us uh, with a code next door and so we we go down to the the lab a few a few doors down and we get in there and there's they're, they're doing CPR they're running the entire code on a particular patient and so we jump in to do CPR because that's the most tiring stuff and then you know the, the junior person in the room generally can do CPR you know like we don't have to push medications we don't have to get access to IV lines and so uh, me and this other third year student we're taking turns doing chest compressions while the rest of the staff in there were running the code. And, you know, the, there's a few different ways I would want, I guess I would want to talk about this. There was definitely some, like, I would like to talk about it a little bit about, like, what was good and what was bad about it. Like, how, you know, and of course, and then there's the like, aftermath of it and how your colleagues kind of respond to codes. Um, so let me, let me talk about at least the good and the bad. So, from my experience and very little let's take it for what it is um i you know took an acls class and we learned how to do run codes and i certainly would not have been able to run the entire code myself and i certainly could not be the director of it in charge you know or be in charge of it but the the big, the big thing i i kind of felt like while i was doing chest compression is that i was i didn't feel like there was a leader like for for a minute our preceptor dr poku did come in and he was kind of running it for a few minutes and then it was somebody else's job to run it who you know the attending that was there was in charge of running it so he left it wasn't his job to be there there were plenty of other staff members around it was quite a crowd at, at least at that point and so i felt like while we were doing chest compressions we weren't really getting really good information um, about what was going on, if we were doing a good job, <laughs> what was happening next. Um, because you had anesthesia that was kind of doing their thing. They were pushing medications. Um, and then there was another nurse that was running the defibrillator. And 
On top of that, this particular patient had an internal defibrillator, which, oh man, that made that made things really crazy. You don't get shocked by an internal defibrillator, but it does shock you <laughs> in a different sense of the word when it goes off while you're doing chest compressions, because suddenly the body will jump, and you know you have pads on the body, and it's like, and your my my first thought the first couple times it happened is it's like, are we shocking this patient and no one's telling me? <laughs> like but you after a couple of times someone i think somebody else mentioned oh yeah he's got an internal defibrillator that's trying to kick on um so you just kind of kind of work through it and then on top of that you'd hear the 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 defibrillator charging up and so the person who ended up kind of taking over the code kind of would wave us off during the charge up period, which is not how I was taught how to do ACLS. Um, and then after the shock, he would still have us hold off for a few moments while he checked to see if the heartbeat came back before letting us continue. So like that was, you know, not a long, significant long amount of time, but certainly not what I'm used to as far as ACLS. Um, so that was, I think really, I'm not trying to say like we did a bad job. I don't think anyone did a bad job. Everyone was doing the best they could for this particular patient. Um, but like not not having a very clear leader role being fulfilled was we knew who was in charge. Because at some point, whoever was doing the record keeping during the code, he just called out, it's been 20 minutes. And then the person who was in charge, uh, I believe, I believe he left to talk to the family. So that, that was a another thing. It was like, okay, well, we're done doing chest compressions. We're not shocking the patient, but no one's like declaring anything. No one's really saying anything. And we're all just kind of standing in this room, watching the heart rate. It's basically a PEA. Um, he has pulseless, pulseless electrical activity is what that stands for uh, i think it looks a little bit like torsades the points a little bit like it for someone who doesn't really know the biggest differences between the two that's what it kind of looks like in my mind but um so that, that was one kind of takeaway i got from it there's other takeaways as well like the situation was just kind of uh tragic i mean the patient did not make it and that was um less than ideal obviously for your first code to have the patient not make it um, but unfortunately, that's, that's kind of a reality in medicine many times. And then I think on top of that, the, the doctor who was doing the procedure, he had finished the work he had done before the patient coded. And so he felt like, okay, he's done. He, he closed up and now he's going to go talk to the family. So that's what he did. And of course, while he was away, that's when the patient coded and when anesthesia was trying to um, wake him up. Uh, so it's like, what a horrible, horrible situation if you were the family to, to be told the procedure went great. We're waking him up. You'll see him in a little bit to, I'm sorry, you're, you're whoever is dead. <laughs> like that's a, it's a horrible turn of events. Certainly something you don't want to do as a physician. Um, I don't, I don't think any, I don't envy anyone who has to make that statement, you know, even if it was a nurse or whatever, like, Gosh, I wouldn't envy anyone having to tell the family members like one moment everything's fine, next moment your, your loved one is dead. Like that is just awful. It's awful for the loved one too. And let's not let's not forget about that bit of it either. Um, and then the other aspect of the code I kind of wanted to mention. Is, I don't know. It's it's weird for me. Like it's weird when people die. Um, not weird. It just it just hits me 
you know, it, it takes me a minute to kind of process it and it takes me a little bit to kind of come to grips with the fact that like there's somebody I, I was literally pushing in on his chest and pumping the blood. We can see the arterial lines working. We can see that we were doing good chest compressions, but like 20 minutes into it, we're wearing full lead, we're in sweating, we're trading off and the patient dies. And like, and then you tell your colleagues like you tell some of your peers and you're like, oh, I ran a code. And it's not like a, I'm triumphant. I ran a, you know, I was in a part of a code and man, I was, I, I was doing a doctor thing. How cool is that? Like, it's not like, I feel like if you did like an IJ line or you, you intubated a patient or something like that, then you can be like, yeah, I did this really cool thing and people pat you on the back for it. But it's weird that you kind of get the same sort of treatment when you talk about doing a code, <laughs> like someone's heart stopped and we were beating on their chest, you know, for 20 minutes. Uh, anesthesia opened the airway up and was moving air through. Uh, we were shocking them constantly. And then after 20 minutes of doing all that, the patient died. And people were like, oh, man, that's really cool. You got to experience that. And it's like, no, it's not cool. Like, I mean, it's 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 definitely a, a fun I mean, it's not fun. It's it's definitely something that I think all you know medical students or people in medicine probably experience at some point or another. But like, I definitely don't. You know, I think I sent to one friend like zero out of ten. I would not recommend doing this very often. You know, <laughs> like, who wants to do CPR on somebody? Like, no, I don't think any. I mean, it's there's certainly the thrill seekers out there that like to do that sort of stuff. But it's like. Yeah, sure. If I if I was guaranteed to save a life, I would love to do CPR on people. But like, it sucks. It doesn't matter if they're 70, 80 years old or if they're 15 years old. It sucks to do CPR on somebody. Yeah. Well, I will say that you, I feel like you handled it better or differently than you did when you were working in the critical care ward and you guys lost people. I think you got more invested in the critical care patients because you saw them on a more regular basis and so that hits you harder than this one even though you were more hands-on with this yeah, and death i i would agree maybe there's a little bit of uh some more maybe as more time goes on and you know we have i get to get a little bit closer to more death not that i want to cause any death um but maybe as i get more comfortable with the fact that people die. Um, but I would probably argue that the critical care people, um, a lot of that I was going, it was going through my mind, like, what did we do for the patient? Could we have done more? Was this the, the natural end result? Like this patient dying, is this really like the best we could have done for the patient? Was there any other end result that was, as likely or you know possible with this patient and there was definitely a couple i felt like man i felt like this patient if he would have just held on for a little bit longer and didn't want to give up on treatment he would have lived you know 10 plus years uh, there was certainly those patients i at least that one in particular i remember working with and that definitely hits you a little hard because you feel like man there was so much more we could have done and you just hate to lose somebody that that could have lived um, I think as far as the CPR thing went, like you go through these checklists in your mind. And I, you know, I, I did ask my attending um, 
soon after the code, I was like, okay, how do we do on CPR? I've never done CPR before on a real person. So were we doing a good job? And that was part of my checklist of like, could I have done something different that could have altered the outcome? And he was like, no, we had the arterial line in. The arterial line was showing you guys were giving good chest compressions because otherwise it wouldn't have been showing any blood pressure in the arterial system. And so he's like, you guys were doing a good job. And so and that, that kind of checked off in my mind. I'm like, okay, I know my rate was fine as far as chest compressions goes. I know I was adequately pushing on the heart to perfuse the rest of the body with blood for whatever, you know, for what, what, it, what it is. So this outcome is probably was the inevitable outcome as far as what I could control. Um, and then that's not, don't read into that. Don't read that to say like, well, then somebody else could have altered this outcome. <laughs> like, I don't know anything about that. So as far as my, my interaction with this particular patient, I did, you know, what I could do. And again, it just, it just strikes me as weird that you relate this to your peers and instead of like someone going, oh man, that sucks. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, you know, it's kind of cool. You get to do CPR, but you know, it kind of sucks. So you have one of your patients died. You just get like this weird, <laughs> oh, that's so cool, man. Like I, I wish, you know, I hope every, I wish everyone got a chance to do a code and I wish, I, wish, I mean, I think it's fair. I, I think a lot of medical students should probably be involved in codes. I think a lot of medical students should be on critical care teams. Um, because I think death is, uh, not obviously when you run a code, you, death is not the inevitable possibility, but, um, I think being around possibility of death, um, people, patients who do die is a good part of medicine. I mean, we obviously want to save people's lives and want to make people healthy and send people home so they can be with their families, but like, we're not gods. <laughs> we can't save everybody and we do the best we can and you learn from every experience as best you can and you go from there um but if all you're around is patients in outpatient settings where you're just like here take these medications you can be on your way and you never see any end results or of patients then i feel like you you might miss out a little bit on the bigger picture i guess um so i don't know that was just something that kind of stuck out to me is like Whenever I related to certain people, it's just like, cool, that's really cool, that's really awesome. And it's just like, I, I mean, if you're into that. <laughs> well, I think going into, and I don't know who you related it to, but my assumption would be third years or fourth years who haven't experienced it yet. And I, I think even going into third year, you were thinking that, this is so much more fun. This is what I started medical school for, for the experiences, for helping people, for working on people, for the hands-on. And so I think it's... The ultimate hands-on experience. It's the ultimate hands-on experience, <laughs> right? Like they're not thinking of it in the aspect of... How how the, the pers- how it ended up. I'm yeah, sure I would person. feel differently, maybe a little bit differently about it if the patient survived. Yeah, probably, but um. I don't know. I... Th- I think it's good for all every doctor to have all uh, as much access to experiences as possible before they end up in their specialty, um, just for uh, well-roundedness, right? Yeah. Oh, but, and I guess another takeaway is that it's. I mean, it's a kind of an emotional. Like you do all that work, and you you're physically exhausted to some degree, and 
the patient dies and you kind of feel a little bit of mourning or loss, like, oh man, I can't believe this person. You feel sad. You feel sad that the person, the patient died. Um, that's not a result that you ever want to have, especially if you're working in the EP lab, you know, like a surgery, any surgery, you don't want a patient dying on your table or anything like that. Even if it wasn't your table, it was the lab, you know, the lab down the way. Um, but I think the other thing it kind of struck, stuck out to me was like, you know, you got to go back to work, you know, you, you get, and I, I think, I know I reference this every now and then, but I think of like a Scrubs episode where I think Dr. Cox is telling uh, Turk about how in medicine they make jokes and they make, they have dark humor and whatnot. It's because they want to detach themselves from the, the tragedies around them because at the end of the day, after you know, after you run your code, after you the patient has died, and you told the par- the patient's pa- uh, family that they've died, you have to go back to work. Like the patient's family is taking the rest of the day off. Like they're not going back to work today. You're going back to work, and you got to find a way to, to do it. And it is it is interesting. That was something that I mean, I, I it wasn't a it wasn't a majorly traumatic thing for me per se, but. It was definitely like, oh, it definitely a little bit, uh, definitely felt a little bit of emotion there. <laughs> that definitely hurt a little bit. And now I got to go back and shadow Dr. Poku and see more cases and still be the medical student, still learning the entire time. I, had, I still had to fulfill my role. It wasn't like, well, you guys ran a code, so you're done for the day. <laughs> it was, okay, now back to work. Um, and I think that's something that as medic- medicine, we, we also, we kind of forget as well. Like you do have to go back to work. Um, and so you got to find a way to deal with it or, um, I mean, maybe unhealthy or whatnot, but put it off to the side for a second until you can deal with it. Um, so I don't know, that was uh, maybe a little bit long winded day. I think we intended to be, but <laughs> that's fine. But I mean, it, d- it does kind of segue into the question that you ask um, on your ask programs on your interview. Um, yeah, I've been I've been asking um, usually a variation on the question, but uh, the question is essentially, what do you, what is the most difficult thing or the biggest challenge that fourth year medical students face when transitioning into an intern? Um, I, I've seen it kind of more or less firsthand when I'm doing it. You know, you do a sub I, and you you kind of feel a little bit of it, but. Uh, nothing really seems to prepare you for the transition from I'm just a fourth year medical student, you know, taking a history and making a a plan on paper that I'm going to present to your attending. But really, your attending is going to do all the, the medical decision making and orders uh, to now I am your doctor. <laughs> yes, I am an intern or I am a resident, but I am a resident doctor. And I get to sign orders, and I get to order stuff that could kill you as well as save you. And so there is a, a transition to, or or even think take it as like, oh, I'm a third year medical student, a fourth year medical student who's in charge of three patients in the hospital on my you know sub I or whatever. You know, I think I got up to seven when I was in my sub I. But and either case, like I'm up to three patients on my sub I. And wow, isn't that a lot of work? And then you get into intern year and they're like, yeah, by the end of the year, we want you to be up to 10. <laughs> and then, then you they remember like the hospitals that you followed that was doing 20. So like, oh man, we have a long ways to go, don't we? Uh, so I, I would do ask that question because I think it's interesting what 
the attendings see. A lot of these attendees are teaching attendings or program directors, and so they see intern year after intern year. They uh, they would have probably better perspective than I do on what what do interns struggle with. There's I think some basic ones that I answers I ran across I kind of would have assumed or. Um, I can nod my head and go, yeah, that makes sense. And that, that's basically the imposter syndrome uh, that you feel like you somehow lucked out. People, you've tricked everybody. No one, <laughs> nobody knows how dumb you are. Nobody knows. And, uh, you know, you're, you're just, the, you're so far behind all your peers. Everyone else seems to have it put together. You're the only one that can't seem to figure it out. And you're struggling. You're barely keeping your head above water. And now you're in charge of patience. And, that's something that a lot of programs, you know, like that's something you have to get over. That's you know, it's maybe not a particular way to do it, but you got to take it one step at a time. Keep doing the work. Um, some programs talk about how, like, well, we we try to work with those particular students. Uh, a lot of students go through it. Almost every student goes through it. And um, it's interesting. The, the answer I got today was relatively similar to what I would say um, when you teach children. Um, so like we're taught a lot of times in in medical school like oh the children have milestones by two years old they should be you know walking <laughs> riding a tricycle blah 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 uh, <laughs> and so you take these milestones and you judge children essentially like are you ahead or behind on your motor skills your speech and um, there's another one like fine motion fine fine movement or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take that all the way to like, okay, you should be reading by this age. You should be doing this level math by this age. And it's funny because we, we, we tend to think like, okay, well, when you're an intern, you should be able to handle this many patients and you should be able to be mastering this, this, and this. And the programs are like, not everyone is on the same page. Like some people do exceptionally well in the outpatient clinic, but they don't seem to, they struggle initially in the inpatient clinic. And um, and so you just keep working with them and eventually they'll get it. Like, and I, I think of it the same as like children, like a lot of times you're like, Oh, your kid can't read, um, at this grade. And then you wait, it, you keep working at it. But like a year later, then they get it. It clicks, it, it comes and everything works. Um, and I think that's the same way. Like we kind of forget that, um, it's like a bell curve in a sense. Like there's the people who are the average and they're doing it. And there's people who are a little bit below average. And, but by the end of three years, everyone's going to be at the end point. Like everyone's going to get there. It's just, are they going to get it? Are they going to, is it going to click in their head today, tomorrow, or in a month from now? (laughs) You know, like, so that was one thing that one program was talking about. Um, Another program attending talked to me and said it was efficiency um learning how to be efficient with your time um learning how to be efficient with pre-charting because in pre-charting i've talked about before is the the act of getting in early before you even get your hand off and learning about your patients as much as you can so that when you go see them you have an idea of what's been going on so you've already got a picture painted for you and so you you've fill in the gaps and then you complete your presentation. <laughs> and so pre-charting can't eat up a lot of time if you let it. You can spend a lot of time digging through a patient's history um, instead of just talking to the patient or yeah. Well, and I think, not knowing which information is most pertinent that you need to know. Yeah, and I think that interviewer 
also had talked about um, like your history and physicals. Get really good at those because um, it wastes time when, yeah, you may have done a neurological exam, but if you don't know how to actually read the results and you have to go get another intern or another a second year a senior or whatnot, or somebody. Yeah, <laughs> then that's eating up time as well. So kind of get get good at what you yeah, get know. good at what you can get good at. Like, be good at. I mean, the program director today said getting a good history and physical, which I mean, that's been drilled into us since uh, like second term of medical school. You you get sent down to Kingstown and you're going to interview a patient at Doctor uh, Dada's office, and your you your whole entire job is just get a history. That's it. That's all you're doing. And for three hours, you're asking questions um, really awkwardly in a group setting. But um, yeah, getting the good history, but getting good at, like, like Karen said, getting good at what you can get good at. So know how to do a muscle, upper extremity musculoskeletal exam, but not just know how to do it. Know what the results mean. Uh, and then like doing, like Karen said, a neural exam. Like, well, it's great that you can tell me that certain there are certain neurodeficiencies in certain parts of the body but like what does that together what does that mean does that mean there's a part of the brain that's causing the issue or is that something else you know interpret it and that's all stuff that we can do as third and fourth year medical students uh, but she that was one of her things is like get good at that if you get good at that that's going to save you so much time because you're not going to be fish, you're not going to be floundering around wondering what the heck is going on with this patient. Um, you won't be making stuff up because that's another pitfall. I think medical students or interns, and when you're unsure of what's going on, you just kind of make it up um, because you don't want to look stupid. Um, I think we've all been there, uh, <laughs> and or you're like you guess at the answer. Like the attending goes, okay, well, um, did you do a physical exam? Uh, no. Oh, so they are they having visual field defects? I think so. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, get good at physical exam. That was uh, another, um, another thing. And, and I think it also, a lot of this ties together with uh, one person said confidence, you know, getting over the being scared to prescribe medications. Uh, uh, one today said, uh, really take ownership and responsibility of being the doctor. And he said, like, it really, he's like, he's like, one of my biggest pet peeves is hearing a resident say, I'm just a resident. He's like, it doesn't make sense why you would say that because you're a doctor. And that's not how the patient sees you. And that's not how the legal system sees you. <laughs> like, nobody sees you as just a resident. Nope. If you, you don't know the answer, just <laughs> say, I will confer with a colleague. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to lie. But yeah, that was essentially his point was like, you don't got to lie. But like, don't, if if you get stumped or if a patient asks you a question, don't just say, oh, I'm just a resident. I'm not really, you know, I'm not in charge of your care. Like, because you are. Like, when you're assigned to a patient, you are their doctor. You are signing orders that can be used as legal documents in the future if, if something went wrong. I and mean, that's not meant to be, like, a scary thing. I mean, it's a little scary. But it's not meant to scare you into, like, never giving doing orders. But, like, you just, you got to do it. 
and you, you got to take ownership of it. Like you, you're not, you're no longer a medical student. You're a doctor now. So you got to start acting like it. Um, I'm trying to think of some other, other uh, points out there that I've been told. Do you have something? The schedule. Um, you are no longer like your own, you, you no longer have autonomy over your schedule. Oh yeah. Kind of. It's like, you're now a professional. So time, your time to come into work isn't arbitrary. It's not like medical school where you can roll into class 15 minutes late, no big deal, or not show up to class. Uh, you can go to the library whenever you feel like going to the library to study. It's like that was what one program director said. It was like some people struggle with this idea that you are now a professional. You're expected to be in at a certain time, and so being late is not acceptable. And so you have to be in. You need to be there. You need to be present. Um, oh gosh, another program director. Uh, so today, another another um, attending said, um, to be successful in certain programs, you you have to be pr- present in all aspects. So like if you go to morning report, and he used this example, it's like people go to morning report, and the a question will get asked, and the room will immediately go silent. Nobody wants to answer the question. He says you got to be comfortable enough to try to answer the questions. You got to even if you get it wrong. Even if you don't even get you get half of it right or whatever, you gotta start. You gotta keep trying to answer questions, and try to keep pushing things along because that's how you grow. If you just clam up and don't even try to answer questions, you're not going to learn. Um, what else? Uh, there was another. Oh, that was a another uh, program director had told me, uh, be present. Um, he he was like, don't. Don't be on your phone. Don't be looking at a computer. Uh, like be present with your patient and be present with everyone you're working with because if they get the sense that you're not paying attention, then they're not going to respect you. You're going to miss some key information. So don't be on your phone the entire time. I think that's a hard one for a lot of doctors as well because we're getting called quite often. We're getting messages. Um one one uh, kind of going back to one somebody else who had mentioned getting a good history and physical uh, cautions that the medical record system sometimes try to entice you to click buttons for certain symptoms like the medical record systems are going to want you just to click a bunch of buttons for, for the history and physical you know what's the uh, cluster of symptoms this patient is having and He's like, but the problem with that is that you're not telling a story. You're not really learning the patient's story. You're just learning to click a bunch of buttons. And when you listen to the actual story of the patient, you actually get a picture of what's going on. You get a clear idea versus someone who's just, you know, oh, I have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Like, okay, when do you have nausea and vomiting? When does that start? Who have you been around? Tell me the story of how this all came together. And the story will probably clue you more into what's been going on and how to treat the patient than this weird cluster of symptoms that can just be like, I don't know. Um, I, I know that's kind of a scattering of advice there, but well, but it's, I think it's a good question in a couple different ways. It kind of allows the program to 
recognize that you are looking forward to the next year and you're wanting to put your best foot forward and you want to know what to work on. Yeah. Um, it also allows you to know what to work on <laughs> so that hopefully your intern year is better no matter what program you get into because each program obviously has had, had different answers. Each person... Each person's going to give you a slightly different take on Yeah, but all in all, I think the advice kind of follows the same vein of um, be professional, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. <laughs> well, it kind of is. Fake it. Believe <laughs> And um, get practice the skills that you currently have because if you're good at the skills you currently have, you can build off of that. The program director or, uh, attending today was, when I asked this question, was talking about imposter syndrome. And he was like, have you heard of imposter syndrome? And I was like, I am very familiar with imposter syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I think there's a good number of students. Maybe I'm in a minority, but like there's a good number of students who I think feel that way, where it's just like, uh, ooh, I think I I thought I knew a whole lot of stuff, but I don't know anything. I don't know Jack. Um, Well, I think with each new experience, like, because I I feel like you... you got out of your internal medicine rotation in third year and you're like, yeah, I feel like I, I learned a lot and I have a lot, I have a lot better knowledge base than I did going into it. And then you went to your sub I and you're like, dear Lord, it's like the faucet <laughs> got turned on full blast. And now it's just trying, I'm, I'm trying, trying to, to drink the up. water, but is I'm not keeping up. Right. Like, yeah. Um, like I was doing okay. Keep It was, it was a struggle to keep up. Yeah. If if I was, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but <laughs> they never invited me for an interview, so I you you be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't invite anybody that That's, we know that had a semi there. So it, on a different vein, though, that that question as much uh, Karen's right that that question kind of gives you some insights on how. It, how you should maybe treat fourth year, what you should be maybe focusing on because I, I all too often you, you hear the f- fourth year is a uh, free time or fourth year is uh, no rules Fourth year, it's kind of a joke between some of our peers. It's uh, no rules fourth year. Um, there's some truth to that, but like, it's also nice to know like, Hey, you're going to be an intern in a minute here. So whatever you can do to help yourself out, <laughs> you know, you help your future self out, you might want to do now. Um, but also, that's, so all that stuff is very true, what Karen said. Um, but the last little piece of it, it's kind of a psychological question because I'm asking them to think of what a candidate can do or be, or be in order to be successful in their program. And I'm hoping that they draw parallels to myself. Like certain, if they have certain attributes that they're looking for, and you ask them what attributes are you looking for in an intern that you know that's going to be successful, because ultimately that's what they want. They want a bunch of successful interns. Uh, I'm hoping that they look at my application, my presentations, and all, all of what I've told them during the interview, and go, okay, he actually has these attributes. So it's a little bit of a psycho- psychological game as well. Is that I'm trying to turn it back a little bit and go, am I actually the fit for your program that you're looking for? Uh, then I, I mean, I, 
I would like to say yes. Uh, you know, ten out of ten programs I've interviewed for, I'm, I should be the number one ranked pick. Uh, that's probably a little conceited, and that's not <laughs> honestly true. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I hope they rank me well, and I hope I show attributes that they're looking for. And there's plenty of there's thousands of medical students out there who have the same attributes that I have. So honestly, <laughs> um, yeah. I did get asked a very interesting question, and it was, uh, think of somebody who does something better than you, and what is it, and how do you feel? How do you feel about that? And I mean, it's not very hard to think of people who do things better than me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I just I, I thought of a, my uh, my friend Chris, who's not, never been on the podcast. I don't think he has any interest in being on the podcast, but so he would never hear about this. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, man, this guy, this guy is brilliant. Like he he does really good on all his tests. He works really hard. Everything that you know, every time I think I'm being very diligent and I'm being very disciplined in my schedule. He's like 10 times more diligent and disciplined. And, you know, I'm just really happy that he's done really well. He's obviously in this match, this cycle. So, like, he's he's going to match in a great program and he's going to be super happy. I think we're all going to be pretty happy with where we end up. But, like, and that was a very odd question because, it, like, it's a little bit had to talk about somebody else besides myself during these interviews. So that's interesting. I mean, I talk about my family. I talk about uh, people I care about around me. Um, but, like, it never had to be, like, who's better than me? <laughs> and why are they better than me? Where, you know, which is kind of another way of saying, what do you suck at? Um, but, I mean, <laughs> this person was nice enough to kind of go, oh, we asked this question because we kind of want to see, like, if you can recognize if someone's better than you and then does that motivate you to do better? Uh, are you envious of them or are you like happy supporter of them, but it still motivates you to do, try to work hard and keep up. And I just kind of kept reiterating like for sure. I am mean, motivated to try to keep up with Chris, but like, I just hope to maybe close the gap a little bit. Like, you know, <laughs> like, I don't think I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to surpass him, but like, we gotta, you know, we we can try to, we can do our best here, you know. We do what we can. Yeah, but anyways, hopefully that gives you guys some insight into what to work on fourth year. Also, maybe a question you can ask going into your interviews. Yeah, I mean, I, you got to be careful. You know, if a thousand people start asking the same question, then it becomes annoying. But Yes, <laughs> but I mean, I don't think our, I don't know. I haven't actually looked at I, our I, I try to ask, it's hard to think of questions for programs that are unique or like, because sometimes you can just ask a question just to feel like you're asking a question. But like, you, these are Zoom interviews. So you're getting... Uh, the best face that this program can possibly put forward is being put in front of you. And so you're rarely going to find this glaring red flag that says, be careful, this program's toxic. Or <laughs> <laughs> like you're not going to see that in a Zoom interview. So you're only going to see the best this program's got to offer. So like when you ask questions, you got to ask questions that could possibly reveal something to you. And but without without asking them like what's the dirt what's the worst thing about your program like because they're they're probably ready for that answer just like you are ready for the answer what what are you bad at oh I'm bad at uh, I get so focused in on something that I continue to work on it until it's finished 
It's like, well, that sounds like a bad thing, but it also sounds like a very good thing as well. Like, so they're ready for those questions. So you got to find a different way of asking and figuring out different things. I mean, that question I'm, I'm putting out there isn't to find red flags. It's more to, more to try to see if the program has good insight, what their insight is to medical students, how much are they actually thinking about their interns, and then maybe they can compare you and see where you match up based off what you told them. So that's that's it. Hopefully, I don't know, some of that's useful. Um, but we'll probably let you guys, we'll probably call, call it, I guess. We, we've been doing interviews. Maybe next week we'll talk a little bit more about our interviews and I think because we're wrapping up cardiology this week and starting into the Christmas holidays so we might even take a break one of these weeks um, I think last year we took a break and didn't do a Christmas episode but we'll see uh, lots of stuff going on and it kind of the ever-evolving question we keep having is how are we ranking these programs <laughs> Yes. Spoiler alert, we're not, we don't really know. And whatever we tell you is just going to be very personal to us. And you're going to have to figure out what works for you. So <laughs> that's, I think that's going to be the end result there. But we'll try to walk you through how we're approaching the, the topic. Uh, if you want to uh, communicate with us at all, we have Instagram, MedFamilyMD. Karen sends out all the stuff on there. And so any questions you have, Karen will see it, try to answer it. Uh, we could even put it as a topic for an episode if you have a, just a very particular question or a topic you want us to talk about. So again, that's MedFamilyMD on Instagram. You can find us on all the major podcasting sites. So um, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify. We are on all of those, plus uh, a lot of random random small ones so you should have no problem finding our podcast med family uh yeah uh, and we'll probably talk to you guys next week have a good week guys <laughs>